Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Hey, Steven. Today we talked to Slater Victoroff about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and I think I was really struck by just the, the time scale, how, how, um, how much faster paced the AI industry is compared to a traditional science. With technology, we know everything happens fast and gets outdated tomorrow. And he really explained why and how that's able to happen how it's different from a, a traditional uh, science research and the longer progression it takes to under, get a new understanding of science. He did a great job of breaking down definitions of terminology yes. that we're hearing about with what is AI, machine learning, deep learning, and all these things. Slayer's a visionary. It, you can definitely tell that he is thinking two steps ahead. And it's, it's keeping up with him wasn't easy a couple of times, but uh, we did pretty good. He did a good enough job. He slowed down enough that I think we were able to. So this was this is a really good episode. Well, joining us today for Superheroes of Science, we are so pleased to welcome Slater Victoroff. Slater is the CTO and founder of Indico Data. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I, I know we said before we uh, started an interview what the CTO meant, because a lot of people don't understand that there's a lot of acronyms when we start talking about business. And so what is CTO? Yeah, so the CTO is the chief technical officer. Uh, so primarily I'm responsible for guiding the ship with response to you know, what technology we're betting on, you know, what we're developing, and how we make sure we stay always on the leading edge, both of the academic state of the art, right, as well as sort of the industry state of the art staying competitive. Well, it sounds like a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> you know, they, they, they tell me I'm, I'm decent enough at it and I take their word for it. So I just, uh, you know, I just keep trucking along. Well, there you go. If they like what you do, keep doing it, right? I, that's what I say. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, with, uh, with what, I guess, product, what, what are you guys, what do you guys, do, what do you do? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a great question. So uh, we're in the unstructured data space, right? And so unstructured data, that is text, that's audio, that's images, that's video, right? Sort of all this very, very rich media. And what a lot of people don't realize is that when you look at standard software, when you look at web apps, when you look at web forms, when you look at, you know, RPA tools, some of that, some of the more modern stuff, it's all really built for structured data, right? So, the, you know, structured data is anything that fits in rows and columns, right? It's numbers, it's categories, it's Excel sheets, right? Even honestly, some Excel sheets, uh, if, if you get creative, they can, they can start going into the unstructured world. But uh, the short is that while there are a huge number of tools for dealing with structured data really appropriately uh, and really effectively, both on sort of the traditional software and the machine learning AI side, uh, the same is not really true on the unstructured side. Right. Unstructured use cases are generally, you know, 10 times harder. Right. Uh, rather than sort of ubiquity and a lot of people kind of being able to get after those use cases, you see things much more like, you know, Google and Facebook, where there's a couple of organizations that have really, really impactful and valuable unstructured use cases that they've gotten very, very good at. Uh, but again, you don't see nearly the same kind of preponderance. And you see, you know, I think all of the press really focuses on the you know very cool unstructured uh, use cases, right? All this generative stuff. But um, 
often we don't realize how inaccessible that technology is to not even sort of average developers, but even sort of, you know, the top industries in the world. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, very, very roughly what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, tell me, I want to know more about un unstructured data. Where, what, like, where might we find something like that? Yeah, so, so, and maybe I'll talk you through a use case, right? Because I think people see unstructured data all over the place, you know, a tweet, that's unstructured data, your YouTube video, that's unstructured data, right? Um, but when we think about, okay, why, why does the enterprise care, right? Like, how does that show up? And what are what are sort of the, you know, real, like, tactical tools? Think of processing an invoice, you know, it's a good example, it's something that at least most folks have a, have a model for. Um, an invoice shows up as this PDF, which is really just an image. Now, as a human, you look at an invoice, you know, or a receipt or something, you automatically understand, oh, you know, here's the total, right? Here's sort of all the dollar values, right? You barely even think about it. Um, but actually that image understanding for a computer is extraordinarily difficult, right? I won't get into too many details, um, but uh, one of the things that makes it really extremely hard, right? Is that traditional techniques, um, you can imagine that if I were just dealing with, you know, the image of the receipt, you know, computers know how to deal with images, sort of, right? And if I could somehow, you know, I can find black and white pixels and maybe somehow I could get to a total, right? But, you know, black and white pixels have actually very little meaning when it comes to, okay, what is the total for this receipt, which is, you know, that number you want out. So it's very, very difficult to approach from that side. Uh, and then you think the other side, right? You can kind of OCR it and you can get the text out right? Uh, approximately, right? That has some issues, but let's say you get the text out, you approach from the text side. That also has issues because maybe you've got, you know, 10 different dollar amounts. And based on the structuring of the receipt, it might, you know, maybe it goes top down, maybe it goes left, right. Actually figuring out which dollar amount is the right dollar amount in code is not something that you can do uh, generically, right? Um, and, and so that that's sort of a case where traditional software tools really can't help you get after that problem effectively. Right. Uh, and that's where you really start to need, uh, you know, AI very specifically for these unstructured problems. Um, and, and I'd say even, even, you know, AI is a really, really broad field, you know, unstructured problems, right? So anything where you're dealing with text or image or, or video, you know, invoices are great use, a uh, great example. That's really where deep learning has kind of redefined the game in the last couple of years. You know, I think people hear about deep learning a lot in the news. I think people, uh, often get the impression that because they hear about deep learning so much, deep learning is like 90% of the AI that people are doing out there. That's absolutely not the case. Uh, when you look at sort of deployed use cases in industry, sort of deep learning versus more traditional machine learning, it's it's probably 10 to 1 in that like 10 traditional to 1 deep learning. The ratio, if anything, that's conservative. Like the ratio may be even worse than that. Um, but it's sort of, you know, again, these, these, oh, yeah. there's, I, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. I apologize yeah. if you were in mid-thought because there's some terminology that I think a, a lot of people don't quite understand. And some of it is you're in a field that is, it, it's cutting edge and it, it, it's hard to understand why people are talking about sometimes because what you do is so relatively new. It's not mm -hmm. like looking mm -hmm. rocks. I mean, millions of years old. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> And so you've mentioned deep learning, AI, and machine learning, and you broke machine learning down into two categories, one being deep learning and the other general 
could traditional. you, yeah, or traditional, thank you. Um, yep. Could you kind of enlighten us a little bit, explain a little bit, what do you mean when you say machine learning overall, then how does deep totally. learning in versus traditional, and then where does this AI? So I'll, I'll, I'll just give you the whole, the whole spectrum, right? Because I think there's a lot of different definitions that folks use, so I can, I can break down those terms a, a little bit for folks. So sure. um, AI, that's sort of the, the galactic level overview term, right? Artificial intelligence, uh, really generically, it means anything where you've got computers doing something that humans would traditionally do. Right. So that that's kind of the, the textbook definition of AI, as if you will. So as you can imagine, uh, sort of the the line of what is considered AI and what is not actually moves over time. Right. Is like when something has been like uh, elevators are a great example where in the very, very early days, because uh, elevators were traditionally operated by humans, elevator automation would have been considered AI. Today, no one looks at an elevator and says that's AI because it's traditionally automated by a computer. So there is this sort of progress to the definition of AI over time. It's actually called the AI effect, uh, which, which is, it's kind of like the AI effect works, words it a little jokingly because there's sort of this academic, uh, uh, it's this tongue in cheek joke a little bit, which is every time there's an advance in AI, you get this little like vocal contingent that says, well, that's not real AI. This is real AI. Right. And they set sort of this new new benchmark. But the thing is, like, this has been going on for for decades and decades and decades of like new benchmarks and new benchmarks and new benchmarks. And it's like kind of funny. It, it is reasonable just because I think that the more progress we make, the more we learn to sort of respect how incredible human cognition is. Right. Uh, but also, you know, it, it does mean that uh, it, it can get discouraging sometimes, you know, so significant progress has been made. But people, I think, often draw to this idea of of general AI. And I actually kind of want to put that to the side a little bit. I think people often, when they hear AI, they think, you know, robots and like thinking, feeling human like machines. Uh, that, that's actually really a separate field, right? Uh, you can argue whether or not that's under the AI bucket, but generally you'd call that general AI and sort of put that off to the side. Um, machine learning is a set of techniques that is very useful in AI. Uh, machine learning is also a very, very broad term. Uh, I think a lot of people will use the terms AI and machine learning interchangeably. Uh, and, and they're not totally wrong because there's a lot of similarity. So machine learning is anything where you are not telling the computer to do something explicitly, but instead you're telling it how it should learn to do something, if that makes sense. So, so, so for, for example, right, so let, let's take tweets, you know, make this a little bit uh, tactical and, and tangible. Um, traditional software, you have, a, you know, a, a string of text and you tell the computer, okay, you know, if there's an A in index zero, you know, increment sentiment 5.5 or whatever, right? You kind of build out a series of really explicit rules that, that you, you kind of looked at and you came up with on your own, right? And then eventually you get a number out. So that's traditional software. That's not how machine learning works. Machine learning instead says, okay, um, the way we're going to solve this problem is we're going to take each word and we're gonna give each word a score, right? From, you know, plus one to minus one. Uh, and then uh, what we are going to do is we're gonna feed it a whole bunch of data that's gonna be tagged with, you know, positive or negative. And our goal is to make it so that when you add up all the, you know, plus ones and minus ones of the words and the whole tweet, you get that, that final sentiment, that those are the same. 
Uh, and then you'd have some process for kind of, you know, changing the weights of the words so that, you know, you got the right answer more often. Um, but you see how you're not, you're not saying, here's how you solve the problem. You're saying, here's how, here's what a solution looks like. Here's how we're going to learn it. Now you machine, you figure out the actual details of what that right number is, right? So that's machine learning. And, and you can imagine, right, that sort of example-driven way of programming where it's sort of, it is way more data-driven, you don't have to know everything ahead of time, um, is, is it a really useful tool in AI, right? And so that, that's why people almost think of machine learning and AI as synonymous is certainly if you look today at almost everything we're doing in AI, uh, it really relies on machine learning, you know, at its core. Um, uh, hasn't been that way in the past, may not be that way in the future, but today, very much true. Um, so, okay, and then now, now double click on, on machine learning, right? So there's a few different ways of doing machine learning. So in fact, what I just laid out to you there, right, where say, you know, I want to take each individual word and, you know, learn a plus or a minus one. So that would be traditional machine learning. That's like a very, very traditional machine learning kind of framing. Um, and what traditional versus deep learning uh, comes down to at the end of the day. And, and this is another place, and again, you, you'll have a whole lot of explanations, but these will at least be pretty consistent. Um, now, traditional machine learning really takes structured data as the assumption. Um, so now, uh, traditional machine learning assumes that you have to start basically a list of numbers of a fixed length. Um, now, for certain things, that's totally not an issue, right? If you imagine I'm, you know, underwriting credit for someone I've got, or, you know, I've got 10 variables on a loan application and I want to figure out if they should be approved or not. Uh, that's, you know, traditional machine learning, you know, you know what the right numbers to feed into the model are, right? So traditional ML does very, very well. Now things get actually very tricky uh, when you start talking about unstructured data, when you start talking about text and image and video. So now let's take this tweet example again, right? Now, when I was talking about, hey, you know, we're gonna come up with a score for each word, you know, plus or minus one, most folks can think about that and be like, okay, that'll probably get some of them right, but that's not how sentiment works, right? Like that's that's not actually how the human brain works. So it's, it's going to be wrong. And, you know, that's kind of a fundamentally limited approach. Um, and we as humans decided that, you know, sort of that word level and that plus or minus one, those were the features that we were going to rely on to solve this problem. Uh, and actually in, in sort of the, the broad field of ML, that process is called feature engineering, right? Which is basically figuring out, okay, how do I go from an image or text or video or something to that list of numbers, right? Um, it, it's extremely error prone, very, very difficult. It, it turns out that people are in fact very bad at it. Um, and the fundamental assertion of deep learning is people shouldn't do that. We're very bad at that feature engineering. And so deep learning says, we're going to teach the model to do the feature engineering on its own. We're going to feed it, you know, raw images, raw text, and, and sort of give it some cleverness and, and give it some tools to figure out how to understand that sort of in its more natural form. And so I, I want to take a deep breath, right? That's kind of a, a whirlwind, you know, first year PhD course. Um, is that, is that, is that making sense? It does. It, does, it makes a lot more sense to me because it's we've even interviewed people about some of these, but I still wasn't quite there. And so that definitely helps me get over the some of the hurdles I was having to being able to understand this much better. 
Okay, beautiful. So, so let me, I'll, I'll double click on deep learning a little bit, just because that's the most relevant piece, you know, I'll sort of put most of it to the side. And let me actually give another analogy, just because I, I think that's always a way to make it a little bit clearer for folks. Um, so uh, cochlear implants, right? Uh, so, you know, these are, you know, to, to help folks that can't hear, hear, right? And this is a medical device that has been in uh, operation for, you know, sort of decades. And it was actually one of the first uh almost artificial organs that we made for folks. Uh, for folks that don't know sort of the cochlea, it's you know an organ inside that it helps you hear. I won't go into too many details about it, but we were making sort of this little electronic version of it that we were implanting into people. And for a long, long time, the idea was that in order to make a good one, you wanted to make sure that the only sound coming into this device was human speech, really. So you would kind of like filter and filter and filter, really intentionally throw a lot of the audio signal away. So the idea was that you send sort of this very high quality signal downstream. Uh, makes sense, right? I mean, it, it seems reasonable. And again, for you know decades, you know, this is how you made progress is you made better filters, better ways of kind of selecting down the audio. The biggest leap we made forward in this space, someone came up with a radical idea of what if we just didn't, what if we didn't filter at all, right? Uh, and, and, and what they basically did is say like, we're gonna hook it you know, right up to the brain, roughly, that's really what they're doing, you know, let the brain figure it out. Uh, and it worked radically better. As it turns out that we were very bad at building, building these filters, right? Even the question of whether you could build a filter that would isolate human speech, I think most folks would say, no, like that's not really possible. You can kind of approximate it, but it's not really going to work. Um, and it's very much the same idea with deep learning, right? It's, you know, we were trying for so long, you know, literally, you know, in, in that feature engineering, I kind of downplayed it a little bit, but it, imagine sort of a vector, you know, sort of a list of numbers that is a hundred numbers long. And each one of those numbers might've been a PhD thesis, right? Uh, and, and that was very, like, that was the amount of sophistication that would go into each one of these features. And, and so again, this idea that you would sort of radically be like, what if we just didn't do that and just gave it to the model and had it figure it out? Uh, in fact, it was such a radical idea, and a lot of people don't realize this. Um, deep learning is not sort of a new idea. It's just uh, newly popular. Right, you know, the first deep learning papers, you know, probably you could find something in the 50s, maybe even earlier than that, right, honestly. Um, but we couldn't get them to work. And, and in fact, you know, deep learning, and a lot of people don't, again, a lot of people don't realize this, it was so incredibly unpopular um, that in 2012, there were only three research labs in the world that still studied it. I like let that sink in for a moment, right? I know everyone hears, you know, you know, you don't know anything about AI. Like you've, you've seen headlines about deep learning, right? You know, like it's a very, very kind of popular field. It's taken the world by storm. Three researchers. It's it, it incredible. It was so unpopular because it had sort of failed to yield results for decades and decades and decades. Um, and, you know, th those three people are, you know, incredibly famous. They've won all sorts of awards now. You know, they've been, you know, very publicly credited for, for their work. And, you know, they run Google and Facebook, uh, you know, so, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they've done fine for themselves, right? Um, but, but again, I think that's something that people have to realize with this space is because it was so unpopular for such a long time. Um, and really all the progress, all this meteoric focus and success we've seen has been in the last decade, right? Um, and it's also why if you look at the clip of progress in this space, it's it's so astonishing. You know, I, I always joke, you know, I think people think a lot about 
coming up with novel, you know, they, they always think about like the hacker, you know, coming up with the algorithm, right? And I have to always explain to people like, that's that's not how ML works. And it's like, they're like, what, what do you mean? That's of course how you do AIs. There's gotta be some genius hacker in the corner. But people don't realize that the clip of progress in the space is so fast. I always say, okay, look, if you believe that you have a an algorithmic advantage in this space, there's two possibilities. Um, one, and this is, you know, by far more common, is, is you're just wrong, right? You don't, like someone else has done this before, right? Just because, again, there, there's so many people doing this. It's an incredibly accessible field, which we can kind of talk about in a second. Uh, so so that, that's the most common is like you're, you're, you're new to the field. You just don't realize that this has already been done. Um, the second, let's say you do. You absolutely have made a, a radical advance beyond anyone in the rest of industry or academia. Um, if it is really, really good, it'll last six months, right? And, and that is just the clip of progress here, right? Is, you know, what is happening, you know, every six months is, is like a sea change from what happened six months before, right? And, 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 one of the, and to the point about it being accessible, one of the things that's so incredible, and I think one of the main reasons that this is true in AI is, um, frankly, industry got up with the academic way of doing things, right? They got sick and tired of Elsevier's long publishing cycles, right? I mean, I, I mean plenty of academics sick of that too, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and basically cut them completely out of the process. So this is one of the things that's actually really interesting and, and also frankly, a little disheartening. Um, a lot of traditional papers uh, are terrible at AI, uh, traditional journals are terrible at AI. Um, so actually nature, for instance, has about a 50% retraction rate on AI papers. And that, that's nature. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and actually, as a result, like and, and because you've had such a rapid sea shift, like the peer networks aren't set up for it. They don't know how to vet this new research. Right. Um, and so and the AI community has kind of said, whatever, like we're cutting bait. You know, we're just not going to work with them anymore. Uh, and so it's become entirely driven by conferences. Right. So, you know, there's three really big ones a year, but they're so big now that there's there's even more. Uh, but it's three times a year as opposed to these, you know, very, very long sort of one to two year publishing cycles. Right. Uh, you know, we're talking three to four months. Uh, and also the other thing is that every single one of these articles is uh, published in op open access. Every single one. Right. Uh, you know, I, there's not. A, I don't think there's another field that even pushes like 10% of their field, uh, of their papers in open access. And even to take it a step further, in the ML field, actually about half of papers or more will come with code that you can use to personally replicate the results. Oh, right? wow. And, and I mean, the ML field, like we're always trying to do better. So we're like, oh, 50%, that's awful. But like in traditional academia, you get that with like 1% of papers, if that. It's in incredibly rare that someone will let you do that. Um, so, you know, I'll take it kind of another deep breath out, but it's just, these are a lot of the things that have come together to make it such an exciting and fast moving field. Uh, it's, it's amazing how fast it is moving. It's amazing how, how much we are hearing about it now. Just really in the last few years, all of a sudden you're hearing so much about it. It's like, wow, only three researchers in 2012 doing it. And so it's, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. now it's everywhere. It, 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 well, yeah, it I, is. I think just the nature of, as well of you saying, well, and I said nature again, but uh, <laughs> with the publishing that it would take, you know, a one to two year publishing cycle, but you had just said 
prior to saying that, that within six months it would be done. So I, I, I see why it would be more valuable to become conference driven to get that information now. I mean, cause that's kind of, okay, we'll do this now. We'll talk this year about this and next yeah. year it'll be. It's exactly right. And it is, you know, it's one of the things that gives the AI space just a very weird dynamic relative to other spaces. Because also, you know, those three universities, um, I, I don't know which ones you're thinking of, but I promise you, they're not the three you're thinking. Uh, so it is, and only one of them is in the US. It's NYU, University of Montreal, University of Toronto, right? Now, if you're like in the AI field, like, you know, these names, these are like the names, right? But they're not the ones you, you think of. They're not MIT. They're not Harvard. They're not, I mean, Stanford is actually like, you know, pretty good. They, I would say Stanford has has gone like a really far away, but but even still, like they, they weren't one of the three, you know, they were a fast follower. They're still, you know, very, very high up in the US, but um, American universities really got uh, behind the eight ball on this one, right? And they've been slow to advance. Um, and what you've seen as a result is industry research labs have risen and kind of exploded to uh, fill the void, right? So actually the vast, vast majority of really impactful research here is not happening in universities. It's happening at Google and Facebook, right? And Tesla and OpenAI, right? Which again, really weird. Not usually how things go. Um, Not at all. So I don't know. Prizes me that people are willing to share. It is. It is crazy. Right. Because I guess if you look at, you know, the other fields that have this massive private motion, you know, pharma, I guess, sort of operates the same way, but they are so secretive. They keep everything under this insane lock and key. In the AI space, in the ML space, I think everyone is sort of this inverse of mutually assured destruction where just everyone has realized that they've got so much to benefit from sharing research with each other. And, 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 and the impact of this is huge, right? I think when people talk about the, the potential of AI broadly, they call it the fourth industrial revolution for a reason, right? We're talking something of that scale of impact. So I, I think everyone's attitude is frankly like, look, the pie is big enough for everyone, right? Um, we can move the technology faster together and we need to move the technology faster. And, and frankly, um, most people have not figured out how to make the business side of things work. So, you know, Google's like, look, every half, percent, you know, you give us on search accuracy makes us a billion dollars. So, you know, whatever, do whatever you need. And we're, we're going to be just fine. And the same as Facebook is like, look, every, you know, quarter of a percent you give me on ad targeting is going to make me a billion dollars. Right. Um, and, and so you've got a lot of these research labs that have really broad mandates, so long as they keep delivering on these really, really impactful, you know, value driving use cases. Um, but, you know, and then, and then I think this is where sort of the flip side comes is you have absolutely seen this massive consolidation into really a handful of, of research labs at the very top because you don't have, they also have sort of eviscerated the PhD programs where they were starting, sort of starting up. So that, that compounds the issue with universities not being able to get after it effectively enough. And so, and, and, you know, people throw out kind of crazy numbers, but, it, you know, 80 plus percent of all the experts in this field work at, you know, less than 10 companies, right? Um, which is also crazy. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a crazy field in a lot of ways. So, yes, it's awesome that they're being really, really open with each other um, and, 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 and everyone else, right? And it is, I guess, also cool because, you know, it's one of the few fields where a smart high schooler can go and actually make real contributions to the field. Um, yeah. so I, sorry, I don't know. I, I, I get very, very excited about this stuff. I could, I could probably talk for, for a million years about this. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Th those are just like, again, just some of the crazy dynamics in the space.
It just it blows me away. I mean, it just blows me away. I, know. I mean, you've taken like a traditional research model in that culture and it's totally condensed it just to make progress and make it now. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's amazing. That's well, a- and not only condensed it to make progress, but, but also uh, become completely, it sounds like becoming completely con- con- inclusive, sorry, stumbling on my words, inclusive and, um, and open. It's so, and not, um, I'll, I'll give us I'll give us partial marks on the inclusivity uh, and openness. I think we could definitely be doing more, uh, but certainly certainly better than other fields. You know, I'll, I'll certainly certainly give us that as much. But um, but yeah, I, I I think that I'm very happy that they're trying to disrupt the traditional publishing model. I think the traditional publishing model in academia is bad for everyone. Um, but I do think that there's, again, there, there's more to be done to make it accessible is like the, the information I would say is accessible, but they've made it very accessible. I would say in sort of a lab bench kind of way. And so I, I guess there's just a very big Delta between, you know, we're letting people sort of experiment with it and we're letting other companies and sort of people broadly reap the benefits of it. If you kind of catch that, that subtle distinction. I, I see even some fields in academia slowly following uh, that trend yeah. where they're sharing more the day when they do publications have these huge data sets and things like that, that they are sharing out so people can pull in and run their models. And it's, I, I, I am seeing that slowly in academia follow that, but it just, I, I think the nature of academia is going to really slow down the progression as you talk about the the industry could do themselves you know and i think it's funny right because i think if you talk to any academic they would be like sign me up for this tomorrow like are you kidding me i'm behind this you know way of doing research 100 but you know like you say it's really this structural issue it is like how academia goes where like and I mean, also in defense, like like the top journals, like their peer networks are really, really good for traditional sciences, right? And and, and it's a very you know different ball game. Where like, like look in biology, like if an experiment takes you two years, then like a one year publishing time is is not that big of a deal, right? But but an AI, right? Like an experiment might take me two weeks, right? So it, it is just kind of a different ball game in in, in that respect. Got to be it's faster paced. It's, it's it, is, it is for sure, yeah. So it's. Uh, what type of what is someone hiring a company like yours to do what kind of product are are they requesting from you yeah so the product that we offer is kind of this full service like build unstructured intelligence platform right um so i would say so for us it's got a couple of components one we call machine teaching so this is it's really it's facing a subject matter expert which is a non-technical person so this is the lawyer processing contracts this is the person processing invoices this is someone tagging videos right you know whoever's doing the unstructured use case today uh and the reason we call it machine teaching instead of machine learning you know apologize throwing more more buzzwords at you still um but it's sort of this paradigm that says what's most important is extending a natural interface to people that align with the way they would teach someone else to do this task, right? Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of framing the problem. Uh, So we take sort of a a machine teaching ethos to it. So, you know, we've got a lot of these UIs where, you know, you can kind of load a contract up and, you know, mark it up the way that you would. 
And then we've got this, uh, you know, this multimodal AI in the background that, you know, does a very, very good job of then understanding what the subject matter expert is doing. It's like, okay, I see, you know, you're sort of annotating a, a contract, right? You're looking for these key clauses. And then sort of at a certain point after you've done enough of this work through the system, the AI sort of pops up. It's like, hey, I actually, I think I can help here. Um, and it, you know, gives you suggestions. It starts, you know, doing some of it automatically, right? You know, and you have a lot of configurability on the back end and there's sort of a whole piece of, you know, plugging it into enterprise systems. But, uh, you know, we call it sometimes the bionic arm for the knowledge worker. Um, and it, which, you know, it's a little sci-fi, but, but, you know, it is accurate in a lot of ways is we're trying to assist knowledge workers doing the work they do today, um, with just sort of this very powerful AI in the background that is good at helping them do their job more effectively. Yeah. I like that. But well, yeah, I had a, a buddy who was a lawyer that did like audits of things. Oh yeah. He brought in yes. AI to, to do, to run things. And his job was then for a couple of years up till like this the past year when he changed positions was to go back through and double check i think absolutely I, I mean i think this is something that people really don't understand uh when it comes and you know most of our customers we're talking financial services right you know fortune 500 banks you know property brokers you know stuff like that really really kind of heavy industry stuff you know people have this this notion that um when you submit like a mortgage application that, you know, there's some extremely regimented process, you know, everything gets looked over 10 times. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like from, from the corporate perspective, like your packet shows up on Bob's desk and if Bob says it's okay, then it's okay. Right. Uh, and that, that's really all the transparency they've got. And then to your point, usually it means that they've got to have folks come in afterwards and like actually audit everything that was done. And, and there is just like, it's just an error rate, right? And, and, it, and what we find always, uh, and this is one of the things that we just think is, is endemic, is you don't have that transparency. And so what you usually have in practice is a bunch of individual understandings of the process, which might be, again, 80, 90% the same, but they actually often might vary in, in actually really critical ways. But, and, you know, they might've been doing this job next to each other for 20 years in slightly different ways. And they just never knew, never talked about it. There was never that transparency in their process to even know that that was happening. Um, so so that, that's a big part of it as well, right? Is that once you've got AI plugged into this whole system, you know, once you're moving the whole process off of Bob's desk, right, into sort of the Indico platform, you've got that audit trail through your documents, you know exactly what was processed. And almost always, the first step is, okay, you know, Sue, Bob, you know, Jim, Sally, all, all, are all doing this in slightly different ways. Uh, we've got to choose how we're actually going to do this process consistently now in the future, right? Uh, so again, I, I think it's something that people people really miss a lot is there is not that consistency. Um, you know, these, these processes are, they may be only decades old. And so oftentimes where the person that initially set the process up at even a very, very large bank might still be there. I mean, we've got customers that come to us and say, um, I've been doing this for 40 years. I want to retire really bad. Uh, but I know that if I do, this process is going to blow up. So like, please help me like get some of this intelligence, like out of my head into something sort of like consistent that can then be used and documented by other people going forward. So that, that's kind of how we, how we play in. I love that. I like that. Well, <laughs> where do you see, what is the future of all of this? 
Yeah. So I think there's a couple of really interesting areas in the future. So I think one that we're already investing in, you know, really, really heavily is this notion of the citizen data scientist, right? Uh, and, and that idea really is that um, there's not enough PhDs on the planet to do all the work that we need to do, right? That, just, just, just frankly. And so the, the idea is really so much of the work in ML actually it's about the human side of things. It's about, you know, these are, we're trying to make sort of like human parrots more than anything, right? That, that's, you know, I, I often say like a mirror or like a parrot, right? That's like a good analogy to use with AI uh, or like also the bionic arm. Cause again, it's like, it's your form, it's your function. It's doing what you told it to. It's got no like agency of its own. Um, and, and I think that not a lot of people necessarily realize that. I think that when you look out today, there's a lot of sort of black boxy type tools, a lot of portrayals of AIs as these sort of like objective arbiters of truth. I, I think a lot of that is going to go away, right? And I think this model of, you know, we call it sort of stakeholder driven automation, right? Or, or citizen data science, right? It's just where these tools are being predominantly trained and built by people that are experts in the application of it more than they are the science behind it, right? Um, and, and I think that the science has advanced far enough. It's not, you know, it's leading edge, not bleeding edge anymore. So like you can implement it, you can get it in place. And, you know, that is feasible now. It, it probably wasn't two years ago, but today, you know, it, it is really feasible to offer something like that. Um, I think that's one piece. Another thing that I'll say, and I, I may have even mentioned it earlier, uh, it's a little bit of a technical term, so I, I might have tried to stop myself, uh, but it's this notion of a multimodal AI. Um, I'll assume pretty much no one has, has heard of that, but I, I can explain it, I think, pretty simply. Um, now, traditional AI, actually, sorry. So imagine drinking a cup of coffee, right? Let's start there. Now, when you drink a cup of coffee, uh, a lot of different systems in your body have to come together to do that appropriately, right? So you have to be able to see it, right? You've got to be able to feel the weight in your hand. You need sort of a sense of heat and temperature, right? You know, you've got to know where your arm is so you can like appropriately get it to your mouth, right? A lot of different senses, a lot of, a lot of pieces come together. Um, now, imagine if you were to instead try to take a sip of coffee as a purely visual task. Right. So, so imagine, you know, if you were cut down to a, a one modality, right? So your arm is numb. You've got no sense of temperature, right? You've got no sense of touch, right? You don't know where your arm is. So, you know, every, every second you're going to have to sort of like carefully adjust your arm and stare at it and be like, oh, you know, maybe the condensation around the lip will tell me if it's, if it's hot. And, and maybe you could still do it. You could probably still do it. But you see how by cutting off that information, you take a problem that was trivial and make it almost impossibly difficult, right? Okay. So... Um, each one of those senses, right? That's a modality. That's a mode. Now, my argument is that this is one of the key issues that we have in AI today. So, you know, the example I used, right? Twitter, right? That's a text only use case. Now, when you look at unstructured, um, use cases today, or, or not even unstructured use cases, when you look at AI today, pretty much everything we build is very stovepiped. So the idea is if you are dealing with text, you build an NLP system, right? If you're dealing with images, you build a computer vision system. And up until very recently, frankly, those problems were hard enough by themselves that we never imagined bringing them together. Um, but just very recently, and, and that's this notion of multimodal AI, right? The idea is that rather than building these systems that only look at text, only look at image, only look at sort of these, these pieces, things that can actually synthesize multiple different streams of information to make decisions, right? Um, and it's, it, 
it's the kind of thing that might seem subtle to some folks. It's like, yeah, of course that's better. But, you know, the, the history is just important is that, you know, we've been, th this is, this is something that has been like a goal of the space of AI for 70 years, right? Like getting beyond single data modalities. And, you know, in the last year, we actually kind of broke ground on that for the very first time, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of cool stuff. Like, uh, you know, if folks, uh, something you could Google that I just absolutely love, it's called Dolly, D-A-L-L-E, you know, like Wally, but Dolly. Um, and this is, uh, this is a multimodal use case where they have learned to go from text to image and sort of back again, right? And so what you can do here is you can actually type in text prompts and it will draw pictures for you, right? Um, it's super, super cool. Um, they, they do have some limits on what you can input just because, I mean, the internet is terrible. And so, of course, they have to put limits on it. Um, but that's, you know, an example, you know, that, that's sort of a, a kind of attractive, like, short-term thing that people can see and play with that shows the potential of some of this multimodal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah there, uh, there's a lot more, but those are, those are some of the things I'm most excited about. <laughs> Later, thank you so much. This has been very, I feel like just a ton of information, but very well explained. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down.